Who is God? The atheist says there is no God. The agnostic says there might be a God, but you just can't know him. The deist says that it is God who made everything, wound everything up, and then simply walked away. The open theist declares that God is learning and evolving as he goes. It is the fatalist who says that God is a practical jokester, for he made life without meaning. It's the pantheist who says everything is God. It was Voltaire who declared that God made man in his own image, and now man is trying to return the favor. Who is God? Today we continue our 12-part sermon series through the Minor Prophets. We find ourselves on the front porch of a three-chapter book of Nahum. And it's here that the Old Testament prophet gives us a portrait of our God. If you have your Bible, I invite you to take it and open it. Turn to Nahum chapter 1. I want to read the first seven verses of that ancient book. And once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Nahum chapter 1. I'll begin at verse 1. I'll conclude at verse 7. An oracle concerning Nineveh. The book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkishite. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and maintains his wrath against his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm. The clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and dries it up. He makes all the rivers run dry. Bashan and Carmel wither and the blossoms of Lebanon fade. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt away. The earth trembles at his presence. The world and all who live in it. Who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his fierce anger. His wrath is poured out like fire. The rocks are shattered before him. The Lord is good. A refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. This is the word of the Lord and thanks be to God. You may be seated. Who is our God? The Bible is clear from beginning to end, Genesis to Revelation, that we are monotheistic. Mono meaning one, theistic meaning God. The Bible declares there is one God. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, we read the great Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. There is one true living God. And this one true living God is not only monotheistic, but he is Trinitarian. I realize that the word Trinity is nowhere found in your Bible. But divine selfies are sprinkled all throughout the sacred script. One place that God shows himself as a Trinitarian God is at the baptism of Jesus. It's God the Father who speaks, this is my beloved son, listen to him. 
It is God the Son who goes down in the waters of baptism. And as Jesus is coming up out of the water, it is God the Holy Spirit that descends upon him like a dove. It's a Trinitarian selfie where God posts about himself that he is one God, three persons. He's not three gods, he's one God. Yet this one God is in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. There may be more than a few of you who think to yourself, but wait a minute, Pastor, I don't quite understand that great doctrine of the Trinity. That's okay. The Bible doesn't call you to understand it. The Bible just calls you to believe it. God is one true living Trinitarian God who is creator. He's creator of all things, seen and unseen, visible and invisible, The Bible simply opens with this great line, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Before there was anything, there was God. God predates everything. In the beginning, God. And what was God doing? He was creating. This one who stands outside of time, space, and matter created time, space, and matter and is the ruler over all time, space, and matter. And this God who created all things He also acts within his creation. It is our Christian worldview that starts with the existence of God. And it's from that existence of God, that God who wants to be known, that we find the meaning of reality and purpose and origin and destiny. Everything about our faith, everything about our life erupts out of the reality that God is real. There is one God of the universe. Our Christian worldview starts with the existence of God, for God predates everything, and out of God comes all life and meaning. And he works all throughout history because history is nothing more than his story. So when you and I come to the front porch of Nahum, Nahum gives us about three eternal characteristics of God that were on display in the middle of the 7th century during the life of this ancient prophet. Did you hear what I said? It's characteristics of God, and these characteristics are eternal. They are everlasting. So the God who was in the 7th century B.C. is the God who still is today. Because his eternal characteristics are on display in different moments of time. And for us in Nahum chapter 1, it's a prophet who stands in the middle of the 7th century before the coming of Christ. But what he declares about our great God is true back then and is also true today because he's declaring eternal, everlasting characteristics of God Almighty. Our God does not change like shifting shadows. He's the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. So in this passage of these seven verses, Nahum just simply says, our God is jealous. Our God is righteous. Our God is good. And the God who at that time was jealous and righteous and good is the same God in your life, in your day, in this very moment of history that is jealous and righteous and good. Nahum begins by telling us that our God is jealous. It's in verse 2 that the jealousy of God is described 
as God avenging, being filled with wrath. That phrase, filled with wrath, should better be understood as furious. So God is vengeful and furious. The question must be asked, why is God so vengeful and, and furious? And the answer is because his glory had been disgraced. And whenever God's glory is disgraced, he is always jealous. He's jealous for his glory. And when his glory is disgraced, then he is vengeful and he is furious. Now, in particular, in Nahum, the reason that God is so furious, he's furious towards the empire of the Assyrians. More specifically, their capital, Nineveh. This three-chapter book could be summed up in this phrase, Nineveh will fall. That's what the book's all about. The book is about the mere fact that God predicts and predates the inevitable fall of Nineveh, thereby with the fall of the capital will be the fall of the empire. And history will prove that what Nahum declares actually comes true, and the Assyrian Empire is no more. And God is vengeful towards them. He is furious towards them. Why? Because they had disgraced his glory. You may recall that about 100 years prior to this moment, God sent the prophet named Jonah to Nineveh. And Jonah went reluctantly. Jonah went eventually and he preached a message of doom. He said, if you don't repent, God will destroy you, this city, this nation, this empire. The prophet preached. The people repented. God relented, and revival was sent. There was a wide, sweeping revival that went through the Assyrian Empire. Everybody from the king all the way down to the farmers, they were dressed in sackcloth and ashes. In fact, Jonah tells us that they even put sackcloth and ashes on their cattle. They were so serious about this revival that they confessed their sin and they repented. And when they repented, God relented from sending calamity. But that revival was short-lived. Tragically, most revivals are short-lived. Eventually, the Assyrians went back to their wicked ways. They were known for their cruel antics. They would have senseless slaughtering of humanity. They would engage in vile idolatry, worshiping other gods and goddesses. And they were constantly involved in promiscuity and sexual immorality. Ironically, God used that crooked nation to take captive his people living in the northern kingdom of Israel. For in 722 BC, the Assyrians once and for all invaded the northern kingdom of Israel. Uh, they took captive those sinful citizens that lived there. And in 722, the northern kingdom, the ten tribes of Israel, they were taken captive by the Assyrians. The Assyrians were so arrogant that about 20 years later, the year was 701, the Assyrians then marched against the southern kingdom of Judah. They got to the front porch, the front door of the capital city of Judah. It's called Jerusalem. And there the Assyrians began to taunt the people of God living in the southern kingdom. 
They said, what we did to Israel, we will now come and do to you. At this time in Judah's history, the king was a man by the name of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was a good man. He was a good king. He did a couple of things. When the Assyrians came after his nation, he called for the prophet. The prophet was Isaiah. And Hezekiah himself went to the temple of the Lord, fell face down in prayer, and he talked to the Lord of the temple. I don't know about you, but I wish, I wish that we had a man in the White House who would just call on God's preachers and fall on his face before God in prayer. I don't know about you, but I wish that we had someone in the White House. I wish we had some of our elected officials in our capital of our nation who would stand up for God and for his truth and for his word. I wish that they would just fall on their faces before God Almighty, the God of the book, the God of the Bible. I wish that we had a president who would clearly, unapologetically call out to God. Now, don't misunderstand me. The last guy that we had in the White House, he was not a model of morality. He was not a portrait of prayerful humility. So now in 30 seconds, I've now offended everybody, right? What all I'm saying is I wish that we had a man more like Hezekiah in the White House. I wish we had somebody who would call on God's preachers for advice. I wish we had somebody in the White House who would simply bow on his face before God Almighty and say, God, I need your help. I need your direction. If you don't move, then we're going to be overtaken. I wish we had somebody in the White House that would be more like Hezekiah. God heard the prayers of King Hezekiah. The story is told in Isaiah chapter 36 and 37 that the next morning after King Hezekiah prayed, God single-handedly, miraculously delivered the city of Jerusalem and the nation of Judah. Because the next morning when everybody woke up, they found 185,000 Assyrian soldiers lying dead in the battlefield. And the southern kingdom of Judah had not fired one arrow. They had not done anything in their attack against the people of Assyria. They had not done anything to defend themselves, but God had defended them. And when they woke up and when the rest of the Assyrians woke up, they looked out and 185,000 soldiers of the Assyrian army were lying dead. And everybody gave praise to God. The Assyrians retreated. You would have too. The remaining ones retreated. They went back home. Now fast forward 50 years. It's 50 years later. It's the mid-600s. And the Assyrian Empire is just as vile and just as cruel and just as rebellious. So God raises another prophet. His name is Nahum. And God raises Nahum to declare, you have not listened to me. You have not listened to my God. Nineveh will fall. The history books tell us that in the year 612 B.C., the Babylonians invaded and captured the city of Nineveh. By 606, every historian tells us it's the beginning of the end 
of the mighty Assyrian Empire. Now I realize that you may not know much about the Assyrian Empire. You probably don't care very much about the Assyrian Empire. But let me tell you, they were a mighty empire. They were a world power on the political stage. They lasted almost 300 years. But because of their rebellion, because of their sinfulness, because they would not listen to the righteous grace of God that was given unto them time and time again, prophet after prophet, revival after revival, it would come and it would go. Eventually, God just said, enough is enough, and Nineveh's going to fall. And to this day, there's nobody descendants of the Assyrian Empire. It no longer exists. Because God will not be mocked. God is a jealous God. He is jealous for his glory. He will not share his supremacy with anyone. There is no one who can rival his honor. There is no one worthy of worship. There's no one worthy of his fame. Only God can be God. God is in a class all by himself. And he is jealous for his glory, for his namesake. This is not the only time. That the Bible speaks of the jealousy of God. Even as early as a place like Exodus chapter 20, when God gives the Ten Commandments through the mediator, the man named Moses, to the people of God, it is God who starts out. And the very first commandment, the very first one of, of the ten, God says, you shall have no other gods before me. The word before really should be understood as besides. You shall have no other gods besides me. The second commandment, you shall not make for yourself an idol out of anything in heaven above, earth beneath, or the waters below. You shall not bow down and worship anything other than me, for I am a jealous God. God's not going to share his glory with anybody. And the moment he is not given his due, the moment he's not given his fame, the moment he is not given his worship, the, the moment he is not given his honor and glory, in that moment, God is jealous for his glory. He will not let his glory be disgraced. Any creature that does not give God glory will be evicted from divine presence. God will not tolerate any rebels or rivals. There is no one who can even come close to being like God. God demands and deserves honor, respect, worship, and glory upon him. You think to yourself, well, that sounds a little self-centered on God's part, doesn't it? I mean, if God is declaring that everybody's got to worship me and everybody's got to give me glory and everybody's got to give me honor, that sounds kind of self-centered. And guess what? You're exactly right. But let me ask you this. Who is God's competition? There's nobody else like God, right? God can declare all glory is, is deserving of me because there's nobody else who even rivals him. He's in a class all by himself. He has no competition. Can you name one person who can rival the supremacy of God? Can you name one nation? Can you name one political system that somehow rivals the greatness and the glory of God Almighty? You can't withstand him. I can't withstand him. None of us can rival his excellency. 
So God deserves and demands all glory, and whenever his glory is disgraced, he responds with great jealousy. Now, you may think to yourself, I thought jealousy was a sin. I mean, I've been taught not to be jealous. Maybe you've been taught, don't be jealous. Jealousy's only a sin if you're jealous for something that doesn't belong to you. If you're jealous for something that is yours, there's no sin that's involved there. God is jealous not only for his glory, he's also jealous for his people. He's jealous for you, friend. He's jealous for me. He will not let his people be disgraced. He is jealous for us. You remember the story of Hosea? Please say you do, because we just studied it a couple of weeks ago. That great story of Hosea, Hosea the prophet was called to go marry a woman named Gomer. Gomer turned out to be a prostitute. And with a name like Gomer, what do you expect? But that marriage is an object lesson between God's loyal love to Israel and Hosea's loyal love to Gomer. And as Gomer cheated on her husband Hosea, so Israel, God's people, had cheated on him, broken the covenant bounds and boundaries of marriage by committing spiritual adultery and spiritual idolatry and running after pagan gods and goddesses of the surrounding nations. And just as Hosea went to great lengths to get his wife back, so God has gone to great lengths to get his people back. That God is jealous for his people. If you are in Christ, if you belong to the Lord, if you have trusted Jesus as your Savior, then you are the people of God. And I came this morning to tell you that God is jealous for you. He won't share you with anyone. He won't share you with anything. He is jealous for you. Where there is true love, oftentimes there's true jealousy. I love my wife, and I am jealous for Jane Ellen. I am jealous for her. And the reason I'm jealous for her is because I love her deeply. And if you wanted to see my jealousy on display for my wife, Jane Ellen, all it would take would be one of you idiots trying to flirt with her. That's it. That's all it takes. If, if, if you idiots tried, attempted to woo her away from me, tried to flirt with her, my jealousy would be fast and furious. Now, I want to be honest with you. I'm not standing here saying I could whip every one of you. But as I take a closer look at the crowd today, I like my chances against most of you. But even if I couldn't whip you, I'd go down swinging. That's what I'm saying. I would go down swinging because my jealousy for my wife would be on display because of my loyal love for her. Listen, God has no deficiencies. I have deficiencies. I have weaknesses. I may not be able to successfully defeat everybody, but I know my God can. My God will decisively, I, my God will 
successfully, my God will significantly fight for his glory because his glory is something that belongs to him and his people are something that belongs to him. Our God will fight for his glory and his people. Why? Because he is a jealous God. He will not share you with anybody else. He is your creator. He is your sustainer. He is your redeemer. He is your savior. He loves you more than you could ever imagine. And because of that true love, he has true jealousy. I don't know about you, but I'm thankful that I have a God who's jealous for his glory. And I'm thankful that I have a God who is jealous for his people. Nahum just simply reminds his audience, the reason God is acting this way, the reason God is declaring the fall of Nineveh, It's because our God is jealous. He's jealous for his glory. He will not let your rebellion go on forever. And he is jealous for his people. He loves you just that much. Not only is God jealous, but secondly, our God is righteous. Verses 3 to 6, Nahum defines the righteous activity of God. For the jealousy of God is tempered by his justice. God does not just fly off at the handle. God doesn't throw temper tantrums. God does not just erupt in fits of rage. No, our God is slow to anger. Our God is slow to anger. It's his righteousness that tempers his jealousy. He is jealous for you. He's jealous for his glory, but he's slow to anger. I'm glad that God is slow to anger. I bet you are too, because there have been times in your life, times throughout history, when God should have flexed his muscles. He had every right to do it because his glory had been disgraced. His people had been mistreated, but God is slow to anger because he's righteous It is John MacArthur who said, never misunderstand and confuse the patience of God with impotence. Just because God doesn't act doesn't mean that he can't. It doesn't mean that he won't. Our God is righteous. He is just. And sometimes there may be situations in your life, scenarios, circumstances, where you think to yourself, the righteous indignation of God should be on display. It should be on display in this catastrophe. It should be on display in this worldwide scene. It should be on display when this nation goes against that other nation. Why isn't God, why isn't God doing something? Why isn't God displaying righteous indignation? The answer is because he's slow to anger. But don't mistake his patience with somehow equating that with God being a pushover. Just because God hasn't moved doesn't mean that he won't. And it doesn't mean that he can't. For Nahum in verse 3 says, Our God is slow to anger and great in power. Those two things go hand in hand. God is slow to anger, yes. He's patient, but he's not a pushover because he is great in power. 
The righteousness of God is the greatness of God. He is great in his righteous acts. He is so powerful in everything that he does. Just how powerful is God? Well, Nahum says he has his way in the whirlwind. He rebukes the waves of the sea. He has his way in the whirlwind. And he rebukes the waves of the sea. That God displays his great power in the wind and the waves. In the wind and the waves. That God displays his power in the wind and the waves. I'm reminded of that night when Jesus and his disciples got into a boat and crossed the Sea of Galilee. A great storm came up on the water. Jesus was asleep in the back of the boat on a cushion. His disciples, many of whom were seasoned sailors, were petrified. They were certain that they were going to drown for the waves were so large and the wind was so intense that little boat was about to capsize. They woke up Jesus frantically. Don't you care if we drowned? And Jesus Stands up and says two words. Quiet. Still. And everything became quiet. And everything became still. The wind stopped howling. And the waves stopped crashing. When Jesus sat down, the disciples looked at one another and said, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Underneath that statement, can you hear the whispering echo of Nahum? Where Nahum says, only God in his great power has the capacity to speak to the wind and rebuke the waves. And here comes Jesus. And Jesus, in just a couple of words, spoke to the wind and rebuked the waves. Who is this? who even the wind and the waves obey him. He must be God. Because only God can display his power in this way. Nahum says that God displays his power, his righteousness, by having his way in the winds, by speaking, rebuking the waves. But also, as he walks, he kicks up the dust in the clouds. The mountains quake. The hills shake. In verse 6, he simply asks, who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure the fierce anger of God? And the answer is no one. I mean, can you? No. Can I? No. Is there any nation on the planet that can't? No. Nobody can withstand his indignation. Nobody can endure his fierce anger. Our God is jealous. He's jealous for his glory. He's jealous for his people. Our God is righteous. He is slow to anger, yes, but he is great in power. And that slowness to anger and that greatness in power reveals the righteousness of God Almighty. Our God is jealous. Our God is righteous. But third and finally, our God is good. Verse 7, our God is good. He is 
a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. How do you know that God is good? Because he's a refuge in time of trouble. And he cares for those who trust in him. His goodness is on display for when you need him, he's right there, isn't he? He's a refuge. He's a shelter for you. He is a strong tower. He is a protective shade. His protective custody, his kind compassion is always on display for his people. He is a refuge in times of trouble and he cares. God cares for those who trust in him. Some of you may read that line and think to yourself, but I thought God cared about everybody. But Nahum says that he cares for those who trust in him. What about people who don't trust in him? Does God not care about them? Well, God cares for everybody, yes. But the God of the Bible shows preferential treatment. He cares for his own even more. The best way I can illustrate this is not with a good illustration, but it's the best I got. So I'll throw it out at you and see if it sticks. I care about your children. I love your children. If your children call me because they need something, I'll do my best to answer the phone. I'll get to it as quickly as possible. But if I look down on my phone, and it's a phone call from Molly Grace or Nathan, I'll cancel the meeting. I'll stop the conference. I'll go into the hallway and I'll answer the phone. What's the difference? Well, I care for all your children. But it's not like caring for my own. If Molly Grace or Nathan need something, as their dad, I'll do whatever I possibly can to stop what I'm doing, go into the hallway and answer the phone and say, Molly Grace, what do you need? Nathan, how can I help? And it's all because they're my own. They're my children. Now that is a faulty illustration, I realize. But it's a pretty good example of what Nahum is saying. Yes, God does care for everyone, but his goodness is really on display for those who trust in him. You look throughout the Bible, you look throughout history, and you say, how can Nahum say that God is good? How can he declare that God is good? Let me give you a couple of examples. The reason we know God is good is because the Bible says so. In a place like Psalm 34, we are told, taste and see that the Lord is good. Jesus said in the New Testament to the rich young ruler, there's only one who is good. It's God alone. Now, I gave you an example from the Old Testament, an example from the New Testament. There are a lot of other places where we could go where the Bible declares the goodness of God. We know that God is good because the Word of God testifies that the God of the Word is good. I've told you before, but it bears repeating. It's not true because it's in the Bible. It's in the Bible because it's true. 
Just because you find something in the page of the Bible, that does not automatically make it true. The reason it's in the Bible to begin with is because it's true. It's not true because it's in the Bible. It's in the Bible because it's true. If you come across it in the sacred script, then you know it is true. It is something you can rely on. It is the very eternal, sufficient Word of God. So God's Word testifies God is good. But not only does the word testify that God is good, the deeds of God testify that God is good. I mean, we could look throughout history. I could tell you stories in my life. You could tell me stories in your life. We could go all day long talking about the deeds of God on display in your life and mine and throughout human history. But you don't want a sermon that's that long, do you? Can I get a hearty amen? You don't want one that's that long. So let me just go to one deed of God, one action of God that shows just how good God is. All i got to do is take you to Mount Calvary. And the greatest act of God that reveals his goodness is the mere fact, the significant fact, the overwhelming fact that Jesus the God-man stepped out of heaven and stepped into earth He bore your sin upon himself. He took the eternal punishment that you deserved. He took it upon himself and he died in your place. They took his dead body off the cross, placed him into a borrowed grave, and on the third day he was raised from the dead. And that resurrection validates the work that God did in Christ on that Friday. And that's why in hindsight we call Friday Good Friday. It's Good Friday because of what God did on Easter Sunday morning by God raising his son by the power of the Holy Spirit from the dead. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, is co-eternal, co-equal God. He's not merely a man who became God, of which there have been none. He's not merely a godly man, of which there have been many. He is the one and only God-man, fully God and fully human. You know my father in the ministry, Robert Smith Jr., he says the Bible is a hymn book. It's really all about him. It's all about Jesus, the God-man. That Jesus, who is the God-man, came to pay a debt that you could not pay for a sin that he did not have. Jesus is the God-man, has to be the God-man. He has to be God because only God has the currency to pay your enormous sin debt. How expensive is your sin? Well, on this day that we celebrate the fact that $6 million of our debt has been reduced financially, spiritually speaking, $6 million wouldn't come close to buying anyone's salvation. In fact, the indebtedness that we have as a nation, trillion upon trillion upon trillion of dollars, and it's growing exponentially. Even if we had the currency to pay off that debt, even that amount of money would not come close to buying one person's salvation. That's just how expensive your sin is. That's just how much of an attack against the holiness of God your sin and my sin truly is. So God is the only one who has the currency to pay our sin debt. So Jesus has to be God, but he also has to be man, fully man, because only a man can serve as a suitable substitute for another human being. So only one human can be a substitute for other humans. So Jesus had to be the God-man, fully God and fully human. As the God-man, he died on Friday and he got up on Sunday. Only the God-man 
can endure our hell so we can enjoy his heaven. Only the God-man can take our sin and give us his salvation. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all of my sins away. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all of my sins away. Our God is good. Because Jesus died on Friday. And God raised him from the dead early on Sunday morning. Our God is jealous. Our God is righteous. Our God is good. I'm not real convinced that you and I hate our sin enough. I'm not real convinced that we love our Savior enough. You know, next Sunday is Harvest Sunday. It's a one-day revival. And throughout church history, no revival has ever happened apart from prayer. What that means is God revives people who ask for it. No revival ever happens without prayer. And when revival comes, there is repentance of sin and transformation of living. People look different. They live different. Why? Because because God has saved them. God has revived them. God has renewed them. Revival happens because God's people ask for it. And the God of the people come and breathe a a sweeping wind of revival and renewal upon his church. Next Sunday, we want God to send a great revival, don't we? We want God to send a great renewal among his people. And maybe this morning, seven days out, we need to ask God to send a revival. Maybe we need to say, God, help me to hate my sin like you hate my sin. And God, help me to love Jesus my Savior the way you love Jesus my Savior and the way you love me. Because this morning, maybe we need to pray, come to the altar. And maybe, maybe we need to pray asking God to save us. Because the God who saved, he will save. And the God who forgave, he will forgive. And the God who draws, he will draw all people unto himself. So maybe this morning you need to pray like the tax collector in Luke 18. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Maybe you need to come and pray. You pray for yourself. You pray for your marriage. You pray for your family. You pray for your children. Maybe you're praying for your problem, your predicament. Maybe you're praying for your health concern. Perhaps you're praying for your friends, your classmates. Maybe you're praying for that job opportunity. Maybe you're praying for your generation. Maybe you're praying for your culture. Perhaps you're praying for your country. Maybe you're praying for your future. Maybe you just need to come and just pray and say, God, please, please renew me, revive me. All I know is this, that the God of Nahum is the God of your life and mine. He's a God who is jealous. He's jealous for his glory and he's jealous for his people. He's a God who's righteous. He's righteous over everything that he does. Yes, he's slow to anger and he is great in power. And our God is good. He is so good. You know he's good because the Bible says so. But you know he's good because of how God acts in history. And all we have to do is just go to Calvary. 
to see how good God is. I need thee. Oh, I need thee. Every hour, I need thee. Oh, bless me now, my Savior. I come to thee. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We bow before our God who is jealous for us and righteous above us and our God who is good to us. And we pray that you will speak, we will respond, we will listen. And Father, we pray that as we declare our need for you, we will come to your altar, we'll pray, cast all of our cares upon you, Lord Jesus. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray.